0: Steve Gaynor, what is your favorite game?
1: My favorite game is Resident Evil 4. So, I've been playing games for, literally, before I can remember, uh, like, I had a Commodore 64, uh, in my room when I was a little kid, my, my dad, um, worked for a phone company and, um, he thought that it was important that I, uh, be familiar with computers, uh, from the get-go, so I, I, had a Commodore 64 and was typing in, uh, you know, console commands to run games uh, and stuff uh, from from yeah before I can remember. And the first stuff that I played was like Sesame Street games. And when I was a little kid, I was really into Godzilla movies. And there was an isometric Godzilla game on Commodore sixty four uh, that that I was really into. Um, and I was I was lucky to kind of go from there up the ladder of different console generations and PC games from you know the NES. Through '90s PC gaming of the Super Nintendo and PlayStation, um, so it's kind of been with me the whole time.
0: Hmm. Like, like you mentioned that kind of golden era of '90s PC games. Like, what what were you playing at that time? Like, obviously, the obvious would be Doom and all that. There.
1: Sure. Um, I well, so I, I was a a Nintendo kid um, ah. for for a good amount of time. You know, for for kind of like. From you know the from when from when the NES came out up through uh, kind of the late 80s I really didn't play much in the way of PC games but they uh-huh. did a um, they did a, a version of maniac Mansion for the NES um, and I loved it and was super into it and it was so different from almost anything else that you could play on the Nintendo and my next door neighbor who was like my kind of nerd, uh, Sherpa, because <laughs> he was older than me and into all of, like the geeky stuff, and he had an SNES before I did and all that kind of stuff. Um, when I was super into Maniac Mansion, he was like, well, if you like that game, my dad has a bunch of other games like that on his computer. And so that was what got me into Sierra games like Space Quest and Quest for Glory, and that got me into other LucasArts games like Monkey Island um, and going forward from there. So really... Uh, Maniac Mansion being on the NES was was my transition into PC gaming at like you were saying a really great time where in the the years following that you know as I was going through the classic LucasArts adventures you know like Sam and Max and um, and you know kind of take your pick of that era that was also when Doom and Doom 2 were coming out and uh, when the classic origin games like you know, Syndicate and Dungeon Keeper and uh, Crusader No Remorse, and, uh, you know, in later years, uh, you know, 97 was when Fallout came out and Interstate 76. There was just, you know, sort of all of this, um, uh, you know, in some cases a little bit um, obscure uh, PC stuff that I was playing along with um, the more obvious titles, and that was uh, due to the fact that... um, I had a, a subscription to PC Gamer magazine when I was that age, and they did a really great job of highlighting some games that were, you know, awesome experiences that um, may have been a little bit harder to pick out on the uh, on the game store shelves uh, otherwise. So um, I felt lucky to to have a view into a lot of interesting stuff at that time.
0: Mm, so basically, your tests uh, at that time were mostly around point and click stuff, basically.
1: Um. I, I mean, I feel like I had a pretty good, um, a pretty good range. I mean, at the time, you know, I played Diablo and I played, you know, Warcraft and I played, you know, kind of like a, a pretty. Bro- I you know I played Mech Warrior II. There was a, you know, there was a pretty broad um, uh, range of stuff that I was exposed to. Um, but I think that. You know, kind of unsurprisingly, based on what I've worked on, the stuff that that stuck with me most was, yeah, point-and-click story-based adventure games and more kind of immersive first-person games like System Shock and Thief and Deus Ex and System Shock 2. Um, And, you know, in a lot of ways, the stuff I've worked on Speaks most directly to those kind of immersive first-person experiences, and something that is more in the non-violent kind of adventure, story, and character-driven experience, and bringing those two things together.
0: Hmm. Um, So, what I mean, like, how how did you kind of first wander into the path of the games industry? Like, how did you first start out?
1: Um, Well, I was, uh, I was in college um, and I had been getting, I'd been going through the art program um, because I had always drawn and made comics and stuff like that. And so I was kind of on this path of, um, of getting a degree in the visual arts with a, um, a minor in art history. And I ended up getting a sculpture degree because I had always worked in 2D and I wanted to learn more about working in a three dimensional space. Because partway through through college, I just realized that like I don't want to, I think, be a like working visual artist as my vocation. But I also started realizing at that point that video games were the thing that really spoke to me and stuck with me, and that I thought about more than any other form of um, kind of entertainment or media. You know, I was like making comics and drawing, but then realizing that what I really cared about wasn't like comics as a medium so much as you know I would be thinking about games I'd be thinking about the potential for game you know design ideas and stuff so I basically realized I needed to finish out my college degree and then figure out how to get in the games industry so um, I moved down to San Francisco after I got my my college degree um my girlfriend at the time who we're now married um uh was going to grad school at uh in San Francisco, and so I moved down there. And my first game job was as a contract QA tester at Sony, um, testing PlayStation Two and PSP games for certification to be released.
0: Hmm. hmm. And like, and like going on from there, like, how, like, what, what, what? Can you talk about what games you were certain at the time? Like, or is that NDA?
1: Oh no, that's no, that's perfectly fine. I mean, I didn't work on a lot of stuff that was very um, uh, prominent at the time. Uh, you know, the the thing about certification testing is, you know, any game that's going to come out has to go through CERT, which is what's interesting, I think, about working in, in CERT is you catch a bunch of games. You, basically, they give you a game, and you have to test it for, like, a couple of weeks. Um, and, you know, you put in any bugs that you find, and then you're on to the next one. And so they, you know, you are basically forced to become really deeply familiar with a game in a very short amount of time. And it's usually a game you never would have played otherwise. And oftentimes it's sort of the, the, like, you end up playing some kind of, like, knockoffs of games that you actually really love. And it's interesting because normally you would probably just sort of avoid those games. And then when you're testing them, you're required to play them and it gives you a really interesting view into kind of why the things in the game that you liked work so well because you see them trying to be replicated in this other game. And when they don't work, you're like, oh, I see the difference. I see why the version that that really connects with me, what it has that this doesn't. Um, And, you know, not to not to be too harsh on a game uh, in that regard, but um, one of the games that I tested was uh, Mark Echo's "Getting Up Contents Under Pressure, uh, (laughs) which was, like, it it felt, you know, playing it, it it very clearly um, kind of uh, uh, spoke to a bunch of the mechanics from the, like, 3D Prince of Persia games, like Prince of Persia Sands of Time. You know, it had, like... Clambering on stuff, and then um, third-person fighting, and uh, it, it had that sort of those component pieces. But you could see, like, oh, okay, the the climbing and mechanics of this game in comparison to the version that it's referring back to. You can kind of see the differences in compare and contrast, and that's really interesting. Um, one of the only games that I that I got to be a tester on that is very um, well known or well recognized um, is I, I was I got to be a tester on um, Metal Gear Solid Three Subsistence, the like special edition that they released that um, had some updates and stuff. Because basically, uh, at one point, one of the <coughs> pardon me, mm. one of the test leads um, came around and was like, "Okay, who here has played all the way through Metal Gear Solid 3? And I had, and put my hands up, and they were like, "All right, you, you, and you." you're testing subsistence because you already know how to get through it. So so you can, like, test it more quickly. Um, so that was cool. But one of the interesting things was um, at that time, the way it worked was you were, uh, you were a temp, basically. Like, you were a contractor, and you were being paid by the hour. And they needed, you know, the way that it would work is, like, there would be people working there, and they would have a game come in. You know, they would, like, literally, like, receive discs of a build of a game and then they would be like, all right, this game just came in, we need people to start testing it now. And so when business was slow, like around the holidays, when everybody had already cert, you know, sent their games in for cert and uh, there wasn't much in the office, they would require a certain number of testers to still come in to be there in case they got a project that that needed to be tested. Um, But in the case of there wasn't anything for a tester to do, they were basically like, okay, you're here, we're paying you, you need to be at your workstation, basically looking like you're doing work. And so if if you're on call and you're sitting in your seat and you don't have a game assigned to you, just bring in your own games and play stuff uh, while you wait for an assignment to come in. Um, So I got paid by Sony to play all the way through Resident Evil 4 on the PS2 for the first time, Shadow of the Colossus, The Warriors, uh, the the Rockstar uh, game, uh, because there was just downtime where we were waiting for stuff to come in. Uh, and, and so that was my first exposure to some really great games, uh, despite the fact that I wasn't actually assigned to test them. <laughs> <laughs>
0: On that note, let's talk Resident yeah. Evil 4, shall we? Let's talk Resident <laughs> Evil 4 as your favorite game. Um, So how are you, anyways with horror, anyways in terms of games and other forms of entertainment? How do you cope with horror?
1: I'm, I mean, I'm really not a big horror, like, aficionado, especially in, in movies. I haven't watched a ton of horror movies. I don't, like go looking for them.
0: Um, I'm the same. I can't can't handle it. I can't hack it. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I mean, I think just on some level, like, a lot of horror movies I just don't enjoy very much because, like, I get that it's, um, you know, intentionally uh, an unreal situation and that it's about kind of transgressiveness and being in a space where it's safe to have, like, you know, horrifying images and experiences and and stuff. And for people that are into it, that's the fun of it. But like my brain just so many horror movies, it seems like are really about a lot of like just suffering and misery and people (laughs) feeling like, you know, really uh, uh, scared or in pain or whatever. And like, I don't know something about It's like my brain is like, I don't, I don't desire to, to experience, That side of humanity more than I need to, I guess. guess. Uh, But you know, that's just me.
0: Uh, No, 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 fair enough. Like, like I can only handle tiny bits of horror, and even then, that's sort of Blue Moon. And even then, it's not not with movies as such. It's only with games. Like, I could count on one hand the amount of horror games I've played that I can handle. Like, Alan Wake, Resident Evil. Itself, like Resident Evil Four, like oh, all yeah. well, we'll get to that in itself, and Silent right. and Silent Hill Three, and Evil Within, and I even have a copy of Until Dawn that is still yet to be touched. Yeah, really. like, <laughs> right. I I, 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 I I can't, and I don't know why I put myself through that, but I just
1: <laughs> do. See, yeah, for me, it's not about like it's not the tension or like the scariness that I that I shy away from because yeah i i played all the way through um amnesia the dark descent which is like a very kind of like tense scary game um and uh i don't know yeah i've i've played multiple like i love silent hill 2 i've played a lot of resident evil games though some of them are certainly scarier than others um i've you know I, i i've played uh fatal frame and other horror games that um, really are kind of, and there, there are, you know there's some games like system Shock 2 and stuff that um, are hugely uh, you know important to me or certain parts of thief are like really freaky and scary and that is cool by me um, in a lot of cases in in films I guess it's more just sort of like the empathetic reaction to like Oh man, this person is having such a bad time. I don't like. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> uh, but you know, that's a. I guess that's a personal. Is I think it's, a lot of it is just like what you can separate from, you know, like what's, how much you can separate. Uh, what you're seeing from like the intended experience that you're having of it. You know,
0: like I should admit as well. Like, I honestly thought the first Bioshock was a was a horror game initially because. Like playing, the, like playing the demo. I couldn't, like, I couldn't do, it. I couldn't mm-hmm. do it because it was so the atmosphere was so tense as you were coming in the right turn, but yeah. and especially when you're stuck in the lift and there's spikes going all over the place. And I thought, no, 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 <laughs> I can't handle it. I can't handle it. No, no, no. It's only when I've played that when I managed to go, couldn't, like, convince myself they finished the demo. I thought, I think if I can handle the demo. I can handle the full game. Fine. <laughs> right. I, I, I could just about handle it. But, like, even when yeah. you mentioned stuff like System Shock 2, like, I had Jordan Thomas on last season talking yeah. about um, System Shock 2 and how freaked out I would be just playing that. And, like, it came up in reference to a game that I re- uh, mentioned beforehand, which isn't meant to be scary in the first place, but yet somehow managed to be scary to me as an 11 year old. Metal Gear Solid Two, really? Uh, especially the third act of that game and the AI kernel. That, right. Uh, that is yeah. not something I should not have been playing as an eleven-year-old. <laughs> Definitely not. But like, yeah. but even then, you just find those kind of horror tropes and games and think, no, I can't handle this. No, even even yeah. even, even in the stuff that you don't associate with horror, like Metal Gear Solid Two. Right. Like, nope, can't, 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 can't. Nope, can't, can't, yeah. can't deal with. It. <laughs> um (coughs) so like you mentioned like your past experience with resident evil itself like like go into a bit more detail about that like how you first started out with the series
1: well i uh the the first time that i ever played resident evil and speaking of uh like generational differences and uh world differences uh, at the time so i for my uh, i don't know i guess uh, fift- 14th, fifteenth birthday, something like that. Um, whenever it was, uh, I ha- had some friends over, and um, and we were nerds. And I rented a PlayStation One from Blockbuster. Like you could rent the the hardware at the time. You had to, you know, your parents had to put down a deposit on their credit card and so forth. But um, I rented a PlayStation One. <clears throat> and rented Resident Evil and this like top-down isometric super gory uh, action game called Loaded, uh, which looked cool to me. Um, and Loaded, uh, I you know I remember because of that whole uh, because of renting it for my birthday and everything. But Resident Evil was uh, yeah, it was a launch title for the PS1 and. Um, my first exposure to it was playing it with my friends and kind of having this experience that was so unique to it was so unique in and of itself both because like you know we we all played games on pc so we weren't unfamiliar with like 3d graphics and um you know fmv um cutscenes and stuff like that but in the form that it was in Resident Evil 1 on a console coming from this very Japanese um, point of view as far as like the tone and the production of the video sequences and having this, yeah, very like, you know, slow-paced, creeping dread, like not not isometric, but fixed camera um, 3D experience was, you know, so many things about it were um, totally new to exist all in one place, um, that it was really memorable. And I think it was, um, I was really lucky to basically have gotten to rent that as like the first PlayStation game that that I ever played, um, and to kind of be required to, to dive into the deep end of just figuring out how to survive in, in such an unfamiliar uh, kind of game. Um, but, you know, it, it really made me a fan and I, I played Resident Evil 2 and 3 um, and kind of peeked in on the stuff after 3 but didn't really go back to it until Resident Evil 4.
0: So you didn't play a stuff like 2 for your Code Veronica then beforehand, like, which came before 4? I,
1: I, I think I might have played some of Code Veronica after I played 4. It was somewhere in there. I don't know. I played a very small amount of Code Veronica and of like Resident Evil 0 and stuff like that. Um, but I, I never, I never really got into it. You know, I think that the the Resident Evil formula um, kind of held up less and less well over the iterations, and that's why I think Resident Evil Four was so crucial because, in so many ways, it abandoned the formula um, and made Resident Evil worth playing, kind of on its own merits again. Hmm. Um,
0: so with Resident Evil Four itself. It's very infamous for the fact that it has a lot of re releases, a lot of versions for it. Like it's kind of baffling. Yeah. Like like <laughs> like what version did you play on like you played on Playstation Two, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I've I've actually never, I don't think, played the original GameCube version on GameCube. Um but I've played almost every other version. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm the guy that buys every one of those re-releases because I just want Resident Evil 4 to be available to me on every uh, platform that I have.
0: <laughs> oh, God, you bought the box edition for the PlayStation 4 recently, didn't you?
1: I bought the... Let's see. So, So I played it originally on PS2, and then I bought the re-release that they did on Xbox 360, and the re-release they did on Wii and played all the way through it on that because the pointer controls actually make a ton of sense um, on the Wii and the fact that it was a GameCube design in the first place means that it's designed for, like, one thumbstick, so it actually makes a ton of sense. And then I bought the PC version of the, like, 360 uh, remaster um, that they released on Steam maybe, like, a year or two ago. And then, yeah, most recently I bought the Downloadable version on PS4. Ah, uh, uh, yes. Jesus! On a whole,
0: to take <laughs> Christ, Capcom, check yourself. Like how many, how many times do you have to put out a game, even if it is as brilliant as it is? He says. Well, he, he says. I mean, he says. Knowing that he will buy every version of Metal Gear Solid 3 <laughs> there is.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. Is like the the i'm i'm totally sympathetic especially as a game designer because um you know as backwards compatibility goes away there's no other way for people to be able to play classic games aside from hey hope you still have you know a GameCube around and hooked up to your tv or we you know everybody's playing games on xbox one and ps4 now we need to re-release it on that you know what i mean like it's it's part of why i love pc gaming because you can actually load up games from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s and play them and if they do have problems with like current operating systems uh you can either patch it or you know like uh, uh um their fan works like you know um like DOSBox and uh, ScumVM and stuff like that that are that basically allow you to play the actual old games on a modern system. Um, but you know, I was um, I was the the writer and lead designer of the Minerva's Den DLC for um, Bioshock Two, and when that first came out, for a while it looked like it was only going to be on console that it was released, and then. It was on Games for Windows Live, which was a not good, um, basically, like, Windows uh, download storefront that had always been really janky and stuff. And I was, you know, it always was sort of a worry to be like, well, you know, when they take down the Xbox 360 and PS3 download store and when they turn off Games for Windows Live, like, this thing that I made just won't be available to people anymore. And so when they removed through Windows Live from Bioshock 2 and re-released it on Steam, and now like Minerva's Den has a Steam page, or when they did the, you know, the, the remastered collection for Xbox One and PS4 and PC most recently, that now, you know, somebody can have heard of a thing that you worked on and want to play it and be like, Oh, I can actually get it just like on this thing that I have that's what I play games on right now. And that my cat screaming at me in the background, <laughs> which you may have heard. Yes. Um, I don't know. It's it's a it's one of those things that it's like it's kind of a catch twenty two where it's like yeah man, there's like so many versions of this game. This is kind of ridiculous, but I think there's also some value to just being able to have something be available to people with as le- with as little friction as possible. Um, and I, I wish that backwards compatibility on consoles was more of a thing, but I also get. In a lot of ways, why that's not just an easy, you know, checkbox to to mark off for people that are making and maintaining that, that hardware and, and those download platforms and everything. So I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. But I've bought like yeah six different versions of Resident Evil Four, and I don't plan to stop any anytime soon. So bring it on, Capcom. I'm ready for it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um. So on that note, like, what would you say is the best version of the game to play?
1: I so. I think that the Wii version is um, a really good uh, uh, match because, as noted, you know the the game was originally designed for the for the GameCube, which only had one thumbstick. Um, you know, it had like the C stick, but it really didn't work like a two stick setup. So, so part of the whole like um, tank controls, you can only aim, you can't move while you're aiming kind of thing was, was based on being a single stick um, design. And so the Wii with the thing with the single stick nunchuck and the pointer is a super good like translation of, okay, you move with one stick and then when you aim in the game, you're pointing a laser pointer at the world to aim at enemies. And so when you can actually just aim with the, with the, um, the the Wii remote um, to aim like you are in in the game it's just like a really good one to one match for that input style. Um, people have noted that it makes the game easier, which is true because you. But but that's sort of like you know the argument about the original Resident Evil that's like oh the controls are clunky and slow and it actually you know makes the game scarier because you can't react quickly to to threats and stuff. It's sort of that's that's always felt like a kind of dubious argument to me because it's sort of like saying the controls and camera, which are bad, make the game better. And uh, and I feel like there is totally a counter argument that's like, well, you could make the controls good and then make other things be different to make the <laughs> to make the game still be good. I don't know if that's a great excuse for bad controls. And so I kind of feel the same way about this, where it's like, you know, oh, using a laser pointer makes the game too easy it's like, yeah, but it was only harder because you were, like, dragging a laser pointer around with a stick. The fact is that the pointer just makes the inputs more direct for the player. And so if that makes it easier, that's kind of fine. Now I can play the game on a higher difficulty setting without as much trouble because it's not about the controls getting in the way. It's about me kind of having a more precise way of interacting with the game, which I think is actually a good thing. Hmm. Um... But, uh, you know, I, I think the the versions that I've played the most are the ones that are based on the, um, whatever it was, like 2011-ish era re-releases on the 360, which then, yeah, was turned into the version that's on Steam now and everything. Um, you know, I'm, I I do like playing that game with an Xbox controller and having the two-stick thing and having a familiar set of inputs and it looks good and runs well and all that kind of stuff, um, but you know, I'm, 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 I'm not. I, I wouldn't say that I am like super partial to any given one. I don't like. I haven't gone back to the Wii version, you know, a bunch of times over the years or anything. I've mostly played it on a gamepad on whichever platform is kind of the most accessible to me at the time.
0: It's just just the one that's more convenient to you right then at that moment.
1: Pretty much. I mean, you know, like the game. I feel like the ports that they do are good. It's, like, it's the same game. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm happy to play it play it on whatever, you know? Like, I wouldn't want to play it on a platform. Like, the. I wouldn't really want to play it on, like, the PS3 because I've always felt like the PS3 gamepad just didn't have a good feel to it. Like, the triggers and stuff, just... It, it, it didn't feel as uh, satisfying to just use the inputs of the PS3 controller, but the PS4 controller is totally good. Um, and so, you know, right now, if I wanted to play it on the couch, I'd play it on my PS4. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's, they, they've done a good job of keeping the game itself consistent and the experience that it's supposed to be. So um, I'm pretty happy with, with most regions of it. Hmm.
0: Um, so before we jump into the Resident Evil 4 that came out, um, yeah. The Resident Evil 4 that was planned to come out, or there were several Resident Evil 4s planned to come out. Um, right. Then, like, so, the first iteration of Resident Evil 4, that was planned to be directed by Hideki Kame,
1: who directed
0: right. Resident Evil 3, I think? Uh,
1: 2. Oh, two. I, oh wait. No, 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 no. I think that Kamiya directed uh, Resident Evil 2. Kamiya. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm Googling on your show. Um, yeah, he, uh, yeah, I believe he was the director of Resident Evil 2, um, but, uh, um, Shinji Mikami, the creator of, um, of the original Resident Evil was still, I think, heavily involved. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, now, Kamea's iteration, uh, he was planning to be a kind of uh, cool, stylish action game. And I wasn't planning to star Leon, but that was canned a part because it strayed too far from resident evil and what was canned as resident evil 4 became devil may cry yeah so like like saying that though like would you have been interested in playing like a resident evil 4 which was kind of planned to be a kamea based cool stylish action game because like Kame- K- Kamehameha's motif, basically, at this point, is cool action, stylish action games, like as we can see from right. Bayonetta and yeah. all that there.
1: Yeah, and very kind of over the top. Oh, and, definitely. Um, you know, very campy, uh, which yeah, I think was true of Devil May Cry and its sequels. Um, I mean, I, I guess you know, I'm I'm pretty open to if it's a, it, you know, if I if I play it and think it's a great game, like. I'm cool, you know? (laughs) Like, there are certain things that when you hear about it up front, you're probably like, you know, well, that doesn't sound like Resident Evil, but maybe, you know, from hearing the pitch for Resident Evil 4, you know, you would feel that way too. Um, And, you know, I think that Resident Evil 4 was a huge departure in a lot of ways, but that doesn't really matter if the game, yeah, is, like, a good experience. So, you know, thinking of the alternate reality where basically instead of Resident Evil 4, there was a Resident Evil that was a whole lot more like Devil May Cry is like a weird reality <laughs> to think of. Um, but it, it could have been cool. Um, from my own perspective, I you know, I'm glad that there was kind of that split in the timeline there and Devil May Cry got to be its own thing because, you know, I think that the Resident Evil 4 that we got is incredibly crucial and a great design, and, you know, represents a lot of the core of what is, um, like, central to the thematic experience of a Resident Evil game um, while being, being something new. So, it would be a shame if we missed out on that, um, but, you know, it's all kind of theorizing about uh, alternate histories <laughs> at that point, you know? Mm.
0: <coughs> um.
1: Sorry, we both got a case of the coughs. Yes. We're recording this in the middle of the winter and these things
0: happen. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> um, <coughs> case in point. Um, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was actually one other iteration before we got to the version that we did get to eventually play on the GameCube. Yeah. Um, and that was the version which did star Leon. And it was actually announced before, um, but it was subsequently to can't. But like, it had Leon, but it was more horror-focused than it was action-focused. Like it was yeah. it was planned to be, like, otherworldly, paranormal stuff. Like, you would have to fight suits of armor and ghosts and even living dolls. Yeah. And, like,
1: and they, yeah. they they released... I, I saw some... Um, I've seen some, like, prototype footage of that um, that has been released in the intervening years. And it was more it was closer to a traditional Resident Evil game. Like, it had fixed camera, I'm pretty sure. Um, and the interesting thing is is they used some of the environments from the the footage that I saw in the shipping game of Resident Evil 4. There were just different enemies, and you navigated differently. And clearly, it was, in a lot of ways, a different game. But they still retained some aspects and kind of repurposed um, stuff that had been built for that uh, into the, the final version of the game.
0: Hmm. Um, so there was, like, you, I think you mentioned it yourself just then, like, there were those traits that the game brought over to the final game, and one of which was the kind of over-the-shoulder camera view. And, like, with Resident Evil 1 through 3, like, and, and with um, Code Veronica, actually, you kind of had this fixed view of, yeah. you know, seeing, you know, a character like Leon or Chris or, or Claire or Jill coming down a corridor or whatever, and then all yeah. of a sudden, like, a monster pops through the window. Whereas, like, now with Resident Evil 4, you're looking right behind him with that, like, over-the-shoulder camera view. Like, how, like, how much of that was a game-changer, do you think, towards, you know, not, not even just Resident Evil, but for action games to Hulks? Like, it really was a kind of paradigm shift in a way. Yeah. There, there were
1: not, you know, there, I, I mean, in my in my awareness of these things, yeah, there were not a lot of tight, over-the-shoulder, like, third-person shooter kinds of games uh, before Resident Evil 4. You know, it's not like they're, like anything, it's not like there weren't any precedents at all, but this kind of feel of, in a lot of ways, Resident Evil 4 practically, when you look at it, when you look at a screenshot and you think about it, Resident Evil 4 is Practically more of a first-person game like if you took a first-person shooter and you just replaced The gun on screen with Leon. That's basically the perspective that you're seeing in Resident Evil 4. So it was this really interesting Collision of very Direct control very direct Relationship to the environment while still being a third-person game where you can see your own character, but it was practically more like you were moving yourself through the environment with Leon attached to you, than uh, than than something that we see even today, like Uncharted or whatever, where it's like you are moving the character around the environment, and you're also moving the camera around the character, and you really are kind of like driving your character around the environment from the outside, um, and that. That very direct connection to Leon as a thing that is always on screen and that is really kind of an extension of your position, um, I think, was really unique. And and obviously, games like *Gears of War*, um, the the creators of of that that series, talked very directly about how *Resident Evil 4* was a huge you know point of reference, and they were basically like, "We want to take that perspective and that." that core um, kind of shooting paradigm and, you know, modernize it a little bit for two sticks and make it, you know, punchier and, and more, um, you know, more, uh, I guess, mobile. Um, but I think that, yeah, Resident Evil 4 was sort of a solution to a problem that, they arrived at and that they they had a vision for within the development of that game and it was an example of a new thing that people who were making shooter games could do and i think it has had you know a huge huge influence um going forward on the kinds of games that we've played since then Mm. um
0: like with resident Four itself like it was all kind of I don't know if I would say it would shy away from more of the horror aspects of the first three games, like it was still a horror game as such, but like if yeah. uh, there was a bigger focus, certainly, on it being an action game, and I think that was kind of why I was enticed into playing Resident Evil 4, because like, like I said, I, I can't handle horror very well, mm-hmm. like you said yourself, like you can't handle the horror very well, <laughs> but, but I think that was a big reason as to why I got into Resident Evil 4, because it focused a lot more on action than Horror, and I think that was actually kind of why I um, enjoyed Resident Evil Five a lot when other people didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, like, did you think that action focus took away a lot of the soul of what made Resident Evil so popular, and that it was a horror series, or like did you think like there was a perfect balance of both action and horror in the game? I think
1: it. I think it kind of it moves in and out. Um, that like it's a. Resident Evil 4 is a really long game for this kind of game. Like, there's just a lot of levels that you move through. Um, And I think that it has a lot of different tonal aspects to it. Like, it has action, but then it also has some really tense, kind of very, um, I think, uh, uh, kind of oppressively tense uh, sequences to it. And it also has just, like, campy absurdity in both the story and in some of the mechanics, um, and and it, it sort of oscillates between all of these different things over the course of the game. And I think that, you know, when you are first playing the very beginning of the game, it's tense because you don't know what's going to happen and you don't really know how to play the game yet, and then they throw you right into the village, the first village encounter very, you know, very early, they just do some initial kind of tutorial stuff, and then they throw you right into that that village encounter, and it's almost guaranteed that you're going to get killed during that thing, and it's almost guaranteed you're going to get killed suddenly by the Chainsaw Man, (laughs) and, like, that shit is so overwhelming in how just sort of desperately you're trying to escape from the situation, and it it communicates so clearly that this is a dangerous place and you're probably not prepared for it yet, but you have to get through this really, like, intense encounter to get to the rest of the game. So, like, here you go. <laughs> like, tell us when you can survive this and then you're ready to, to keep playing. Um, and, you know, there's, there's sections later um, where, like, there's that one section where you're in those tunnels and there's basically that one... Like, it's, it's sort of like a xenomorph from Alien or, or a Predator or something like that. But it's that one, like, big stalking creature that seems almost invincible. And it's it's a really, like, survival horror, you know, um, kind of uh, like a, a, a very intense thriller moment of, you know, your, your heart is racing and you're on edge. And you're just scared of this thing that it seems like you hardly have anything any way to to even deal with it aside from just trying to get away from it. Um, And I think that that balance of saying yes, it's much easier now to like shoot at enemies and be effective in combat but there are sequences in the game where that isn't going to help you (laughs) in a lot of ways and you're going to be scared and you're going to be like how can I even survive this and it's a classic, you know, like creeping horror moment um, or a kind of new, um, oh my God, the whole village is against me. You know, how do I escape from from this uh, this crowd of, of maniacs kind of experience? has never been in that kind of game at that point. Um, I think that when it brings horror in, it's super effective. And I feel like, I guess there's just more variance to what kinds of experiences there are in the game than there had been in prior Resident Evils, but I think that the fact that that they still deliver those kinds of like pure survival horror moments throughout the campaign um, is super effective.
2: Hmm.
0: Like, with with the controls as well, because up until Resident Evil 6 you couldn't move whilst shooting, whereas with... Whereas with six you could move, but with four you couldn't. Like you had to stop right. and shoot, and that added as well to that kind of tense, uh, mo- tense moment-to-moment movement play as well. Like right. ha- having to take down the enemies and all that there, and like yeah, that that just basically added to it as well.
1: Yeah, and I you know I I think that on the one hand that is one of those things that was um, tied to the whole GameCube input uh, device kind of. Um, uh as a starting point um but that it was tied so well into the design of saying you have these two different states and they're totally separate and they're very distinct and part of your decision making is like am i moving or am i aiming and if i'm aiming and guys are getting close to me i need to switch states and evade and then go back into you know sort of like being in an aggressive versus an evasive, um, phase that you're under control of. Um, you know, I wouldn't mind as, as a slight update for dual stick controllers, if you could move while aiming, but maybe just like very slowly, you know, like I don't really see a reason that you shouldn't just be able to back up very kind of like carefully while you continue to aim. Um, but for me that would a mostly just be a concession to like, well, why can't I do that? without hopefully impacting the like core experience too much but the other side of it is as soon as you add in that one new thing even if it seems like oh you know like you hardly you know you 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 can move you're just moving very slowly so it shouldn't have any impact on anything like it immediately changes the balance of every encounter and it immediately introduces edge cases you know of like well what happens if you back into this thing while you're aiming and all that kind of stuff so you know, coming from the game development side, while I while I see something or I'm like, oh, it'd be nice if we had that. You know, if you just threw that in, I also have a total awareness of the fact that anything that seems easy actually is a total uh, <laughs> like has so many. It's Any any idea that seems easy is just the tip of the iceberg, and the iceberg is all the other shit that you never imagined that it would cause problems with that now you have to deal with. So <laughs> what I mean to say is Resident Evil 4 is perfect. Don't change anything about it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, you mentioned the absurdity of some of the aspects of the game, like from a story and mechanically. Anyways, and when you when you said that, especially mechanically, there was one yeah. thing that immediately popped in my mind. And that was the shopkeeper. Yeah, and just how absurd that he is, or, or what that is, or I don't know how to pronounce yeah. it in that way. But that that, that that just goes with the absurdity of the game in itself, I Yeah,
1: the the shopkeeper um, who just yeah reappears everywhere and is such a strange um, presence in the game and kind of lends another element of kind of otherworldly uh, uh, otherworldliness to this um to the setting and then just like so so much of the dialogue between leon and the other characters and over the radio and everything and just the the very jokey corniness of like goofy one-liners and innuendos and stuff which is you know totally at odds with sort of the 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 darkness and uh and, and tension of being stalked by, you know, people with pitchforks and everything. Um, and I think that something that I really appreciate about it is just that the game doesn't take itself more seriously than it needs to, or than it should. You know, like, I don't think Resident Evil 4 would be better if it was super self-serious about its own story and its own setting. Like, I, I, like, I really love the balance of okay trying to acknowledge and go to like the logical conclusion of what this setting and story really means is just ridiculous but we're not going to back away from it and just be like it doesn't have a story at all you just walk forward and shoot enemies but we're also not going to try to say like no this is serious you know art we're we're gonna like really be about like how important our lore is they're like no we're gonna like acknowledge and invest in the fact that this game has a narrative and also acknowledge and invest in the fact that it's kind of ridiculous but the characters aren't aware of it it's not like self-parody or you know like kind of meta fourth wall stuff like the characters are all in a world where this stuff that's happening is very important to them but the creators are kind of like on the same page with the player of yeah but this is this is, this is kind of silly though <laughs> uh, which is a really hard line to walk and I I totally totally appreciate um the fact that the game is so true to itself in that way
0: mm. um so with that man, like in playing Resident Evil 4 like how did you find <laughs> playing as Leon and like as, as an add-on to that like accompanying uh, um Ashley, accompanying, uh, uh, <laughs> Ashley as an accompanying uh, accompanying character like for you like it, like playing Resident Evil 4 like certainly for me like it was one of the first times like it was basically a kind of um hold your kind of like keep, keep an eye on your companion at the same time as one mm-hmm. of those kind of first games that I encountered in that way like there's a few others obviously that that's just come out since then that kind of stick out for me. Like Half Life Two, although Alex can really, you know, keep an eye out on because mm-hmm. she's such a great character. But like yeah. as well as like things like RE and um Half Life things like recently as well, like Bioshock Infinite and The Last of Us and coming to a game that's just come out fairly recently as we're recording this. Not even a tale of two humans, but more a human and a thing. In The Last Guardian.
1: Yeah. Well, I think pointing back towards that, I, I don't know. I haven't looked. I, I, I don't know if this is like a thing or not. Um, but uh, as far as The Last Guardian goes, um, Ico came out a number of years, oh, yeah, like, Ico, I guess I three or four it. years. Yeah, so that came out, you know, three or four years before as Evil 4 did. And I have no idea if it was a direct influence, but I could totally see it. Being something that the Resident Evil team played and you know that was could have been part of um, one you know one of their points of reference Um, because you know the relationship with Ashley is different in a lot of ways mechanically thematically everything else but you're right that there weren't a lot of examples of a kind of meaningful like mechanically meaningful um, companion character in this kind of game and furthermore you know in Ico it was very much an escort quest thing and like the mechanic of protecting Yorda in combat in Ico is very similar to Resident Evil 4 where it's like they aren't trying to kill her but they will come up and literally throw her over their shoulder and carry her off to you know the the whatever the door uh where if you let her get through the door it's game over and that's like the exact same uh mechanic um so you know i I would be interested to know if if those two games are directly in dialogue um but i think that you know to your question um i think that you know like ashley as a character and as a concept you know is like a little bit problematic in how she <laughs> how she's depicted. And it's not like a super, um, you know, elevated, uh, kind of, uh, perspective on, on that relationship. Um, but I think that that fits within the campiness and the, um, the tongue in cheek feeling of the overall experience. Like it's not something that stands out at me to me as, um, rubbing me the wrong way within within the context of the game and and the way that it approaches its story and and characters um, and then mechanically I think it's a really interesting um, uh, aspect of the game where you know everybody is down on escort quests people you know don't don't escort quest is kind of a dirty word in general for for players and a lot of game designers. But I think there's something that was super valuable in, um, in resident evil four about the sequences where it's like, okay, you don't only have to worry about yourself and your own survival and basically just maintaining your own hit points. Um, in these sequences, you have to manage your own, you know, uh, Survival, but you also have to be thinking about this other character and where they are and how what you're doing relates to them. Um, and it was just one more thing to manage that added an additional layer of, I think, interesting decision making to um, those encounters in the game. Um, I think some people are not not a fan of having to deal with her in in uh, in Resident Evil Four, but I'm totally into the sequences where you're like okay, there's one more thing I have to be thinking about, not just where am I, but where is she and who's approaching me and who's approaching her and how do I juggle those things? Um, I think is something that speaks really well to the core mechanics of a Resident Evil 4 encounter personally.
0: Hmm. Um, So I think it's pretty clear in talking about it for the past hour, like there is a big, you know, legacy and influence uh, from Resident Evil 4 so many years on. Like, Like, The companionship like we just talked about you can spring that back even the eco and how much it's influenced games since it's released like you mentioned gears of war uh last of us swells a pretty big inspiration as well um like like yeah like talk of the influence on legacy re four has had since it's released like it's 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 pretty darn big like from a kind of mechanical and story perspective as well and maybe even in Atmosphere as well.
1: I think think atmosphere is a big part of it. Um, You know, for me, um, Resident Evil 4, personally, as a developer, um, hasn't had much, I think, direct, kind of like, uh, visible influence on stuff that I've made, but Resident Evil 1 really has, uh, mostly in as much as the intro lobby um, the first room of Resident Evil One, which is like a big mansion foyer with a big central staircase going up, um, has appeared in like in some form or another in a lot of stuff that I've worked on. Like the very first um, like you, like uh, map that I released as an amateur like FPS uh, level designer was I was making levels for the first person shooter, um, Fear, which came out in like 2005. It's the monolith um, kind of like, you know, time manipulation slow-mo um, FPS. So I made a level that was based on that. that was basically based on Resident Evil conceptually. Like you start out in a mansion and it has the foyer with the big central staircase and then you go underground under it and there's like a lab down there and everything. And then you know, if you look at the entry, the entry hall of um, Gone Home, it's pretty much the Resident Evil <laughs> en- entry hall. To say. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like in Minerva's Den, you come in from out on the ocean floor, and then you go in through an airlock and up some stairs and around a thing, and then there's just a big central foyer with big central stairs going up to a landing. I, there's something for me, that just, like, I imprinted, I guess, on that uh, that space and that feeling that it gives you of being in this place and, and I think that feeling of there being this imposing presence of, like, there's something up there, you know what I mean? Um, hmm. so, so, like you were saying about, like, tone and atmosphere, I think there's something that's really connected with me about their approach to an atmosphere that has... Attention to it and that it feels like like there's something here that is kind of wrong or that you need to to be wary of or you need to find out about or discover um and just that there's like more to uncover in this environment that um that yeah i i keep going back to <laughs> to that room um we don't really have that in tacoma because we don't have uh like the scale of spaces where that makes sense to do I don't think but um i don't know we'll see we'll see if it reappears in the future i guess
0: <laughs> um so as well as Resident really Evil 4 like Shinji Mikami more or less left like capcom after well he did do cover studios with um Inaba and Mikami um right
1: and and, and they were published by capcom but yeah. they were still sort of a separate studio yes, yeah
0: yes um and, like, af- afterwards, like, when Clo- uh, Clover, he went to Platinum and then Tango, Bethesda, like, since, right. since, since Resident Evil 4, like, came out, like...
1: Did did, did did Mikami release anything as the game director at Clover? I know he released Vanquish at yeah. Platinum. Games.
0: Yeah, and, like, the evil fan was Tango, and he did... Right. Um, uh, What's well, that, like Clover? Godhand!
1: Oh, right, he did Godhand at Clover, which I really love Godhand. Hand. God Hand is an amazing game, and it's even more um, like mechanically, it's even harder to kind of wrap your head around, and tonally, it's even campier and more kind of like out of control. But yeah, I I love loved that game, and it's a crazy follow-up to Resident Evil 4, because it's so lo-fi, and it's so kind of like, yeah, intentionally just super hard and, and not easy to get into. Um, right. Right. God Hand, Clover,
0: Mikami, yes. I... Um, no, I was just going to say as well, like, even God Hand has one or two references to Resident Evil 4, especially when Kami, and the fact that he said one time uh, if Resident Evil 4 appeared anywhere else but the GameCube, he would more or less cut his head off or something, and that was made reference right. to in God Hand as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but to, yeah. <laughs> my, <laughs> to my point, um, like, since, like, his recent works and all, and his influence on horror and action games since sorry 4 like, how, how, I'm trying to find the way to, to question this as a question, but like, how much how, how much of a big impact has he made since Resident Evil 4 in terms of his own actual games? Because, like, obviously, the, the Evil Within is very tonally near enough the spiritual success of the Resident Evil 4 in a way, but you could yeah. say the same thing for. Shadows of the Damned, which he did with Thread right. as well.
1: Um, you know, I think that uh, it's clear that nothing that he's released since Resident Evil Four has had the kind of, you know, impact that that has. Um, I think the games that he's made have been fantastic. I mean, I think that God Hand is great, and I I really loved Vanquish, and I thought that it did a lot of interesting things. And Vanquish is a really interesting. Um, kind of uh, a response to the response to Resident Evil 4. You know what I mean? Like It's like Resident Evil 4 was was very slow-paced and deliberate and had these very distinct kind of um, move and aim phases in its controls, and it was sort of all about that. And then other third-person games came along and were like, okay, we're going to make Resident Evil 4 more responsive and, and faster-paced and more action-y, And then Vanquish is kind of Mikami saying, like, oh, well, if that's what you want, (laughs) like, you aren't making this fast and crazy enough. Like, this is, like, if you're you're saying Resident Evil 4, but faster and more action-y, how about you literally have rockets on your feet, and you literally can't ever stop moving because you'll get killed by stuff. And, like, it was a really interesting, I think, version of Mikami saying, like, Okay, well, let me show you how it's done. If that's what you think, <laughs> if that's what you think about what I did with Resident Evil Four, how how do you like this? You know what I mean? Um, I think that's a really interesting thing to see as sort of yeah a ten year dialogue around um, a game that that was released, um, but you know it it's it's not like that had the kind of impact that Resident Evil Four had, and sometimes that's just like a you know a, a right place, right time. Lightning in a bottle thing, where it's sort of like, oh, I happen, you know, Mikami happened to be working on the game that he had the ability to solve some problems with it that then were solving problems other people didn't know they had yet, or that gave people uh, you know new ideas to run with um, that could turn into other games that you hadn't played before. Um, and sometimes you only get lucky enough to be in that kind of situation once, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, like that's okay. Um, I, you know, I have no idea if Mikami will make another game that's like has as much of an impact as Resident Evil 4 did, but like I think as a creator a lot of times you're just not in control of that, you know what I mean? It's like, try to do the best job you can, and if you happen to be able to use that to do something that, that kind of appears at the right point in history to to be the thing that people... Point back to as as a big influence or it's something that changed how people did their work. Like that's awesome, but uh, you don't get to choose that. I think you know. Hmm.
0: Um. So, what else did you like about Resident Evil Four that we've not really touched upon here?
1: Um, I really like. Um, I really like the overall game loop, like the high level game loop of the game. You know, it has a kind of, um, you know, almost RPG-ish overall structure to it um, in a way that I think you can see echoes of in stuff like Bioshock and other action shooter games with RPG elements where, you know, you as the player explore the environment, get into enemy encounters, find... Uh, you know, money resources and also find um, the different colors of herbs. And then you use those resources to buy new weapons, upgrade those weapons, upgrade them in specific ways that support your playstyle. You decide whether to use the yellow herbs to increase Leon's life bar or increase Ashley's life bar. And there's, there's this really satisfying loop of not just, I'm going forward, and I'm shooting everything, and now I survived the encounter, I'm going to go forward and, and shoot everything. It's it's like, also, you have an inventory, and I love the grid inventory. I'm a huge fan of grid inventories in games in general. I was so happy when the new um, Deus Ex games came out, and they had the grid inventory. Um, because, you know, people complain about inventory Tetris, but, like, I really love a system where it's about how much space you have and how you can arrange that and what it means to put one more thing in your pocket. And it's not just like, you know, a weight based encumbrance thing. And it's not like you can just carry infinite stuff. You have to make choices about, you know, if I'm going to have the infrared scope on my rifle, it takes up four inventories slots. And like, that's four fewer, whatever grenades I can carry, you know? And like those kinds of very direct trade-offs, I think, are actual like fun, interesting decisions to be making. So just this idea of it's sort of like you explore the world, you get into encounters, you gather up resources, you decide whether you're going to spend them on making your inventory larger or upgrading your shotguns, you know, reload speed, or you know, it it sort of has a very player driven, high level, satisfying loop to it that is not just about making forward progress, but also deciding. What you're going to invest in as a player to kind of address um, later challenges in the way that you want to. Um, and something that's really interesting that I discovered that I think I saw from you know someone kind of sharing this tip online on game facts or whatever, is um, almost all or not almost all, but a, a very large amount of the stuff that you find in the game, the the ammo and and stuff that you find in the game comes out of boxes and barrels and is dropped by enemies. And that is all um, based on a kind of dynamic difficulty um, algorithm that determines what you need as a player and spawns relevant stuff when you break the barrel or when you kill a guy and he drops something. And so the interesting thing is it's actually, it's very viable to play the game with a lot of different weapon loadouts and, like, weird weapon loadouts because if you don't have a pistol but you have the TMP submachine gun, the game will tend to give you less pistol ammo and give you more TMP ammo and, you know, vice versa. So you can totally do some weird runs and just be like, I think I'm, like, you know, whatever, shotgun, rifle, and mind thrower only in this game. And, you know, it can make it harder or easier, but the game makes it possible, as opposed to if the designers had just decided like, okay, every room you're going to get 12 pistol bullets, then it would be like, okay, so I guess I have to use a pistol to complete this game. But they didn't do that. And it's really interesting to to actually push on the boundaries of, okay, well, the game says it's possible for me to do this. Like, I can sell... What, you know, I can sell my shotgun and do a no shotgun run of the game and it's not just a false choice that isn't supported, but it's a real choice that it might make the game harder and it might mean I have to make other decisions to account for it, but it's a real choice, not just a like, oh yeah, sure, you can sell your shotgun, uh, good luck actually making it through the game without it, you know what I mean? And all of that stuff feels very, um, very satisfying. Uh, as someone who's interacting with the systems and seeing kind of how robust they really are and how much they, you know, kind of deliver on what the systems imply they should be capable of.
0: Hmm. Um, what didn't you like about RE4? Um, uh, let
1: me think. Um, the. I mean, you know, the, the QTEs are not necessarily the best part of the game, <laughs> right? Like, have, having to press the right combination of buttons to not die during a during a cutscene is not necessarily, like, <laughs> the, the most enduring aspect of, of that game, I would say, and also probably the worst um, influence that it did have on other games that came after it. Like, Resident Evil 4 didn't invent QTEs. Um, uh, uh, the... Um, uh, Shenmue, more or less, invented QTEs. I think I think that's certainly where the term came from. Um, and you know, QTEs in AAA games from the kind of 2006 to present era are not a good legacy. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, like and the thing is, I think that in Resident Evil Four, they're mostly done about as well as they can be, which is to say, like. What they're supposed to communicate is here's a sudden thing that you have to act fast to you know, it's like a oh shit, you know, you have to like have fast reflexes to react to this to this thing. Um and in most of the most of the times I think the QTEs in Resident Evil 4 are kind of the best version of them. Um but the dangerous thing about introducing something into you know, the dialogue is that if it's something that can really easily be done badly, uh, <laughs> then you are going to see it be done badly a lot. <laughs> and I think there's been a lot of bad use of PTEs in the intervening years. Um, so that's a little unfortunate. <laughs>
0: um, so you said earlier that there would be absolutely nothing you would change from Resident Evil 4 because it's perfect. But I'm going to ask <laughs> you now what would you change from a design perspective?
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I. I I would seriously consider how necessary the QTEs are. Um, I do think it would be nice if you could move a little bit um, while you were aiming. I think there's some stuff about how it tutorializes um, what you can actually do in the game that could certainly be improved. I think there's some very crucial um, uh, inputs and strategies that are not very clear unless you kind of get them from a secondary source that's not inside the game. Like the, you know, they, they give you the little gameplay manuals as you're starting that kind of show, you know, tell you all the stuff that you can do, um, but it's easy to not really internalize it. So, like, stuff like the quick turn mechanic is, like, super important. And, like, just the fact that if you stagger an enemy, you can run up to them and do... Uh, a melee attack, and that it's like super, super powerful. Um, and that also the knife is um, really valuable to use like on downed enemies as opposed to just to break uh, boxes or like if you're out of ammo. Like, there are, these, there are these elements of the design that I think that if you see someone play the game who is, you know, really good at it, they've internalized all of those things. But some of that is either because you've played it for so many hours that you just sort of stumbled upon it or because, yeah, you were looking stuff up online or your friend told you or, you know, whatever. Um, and so I think that there's certainly ways that the game could show players how to be more effective um, on its own. Um, yeah, I also think that the, the overall pacing of some parts of the campaign um, could be... Tighter. I'm not a big fan of a lot of the encounters on the island um, when there start being like, you know, mounted machine guns and guys with you know like military gear on and stuff like that. It's it's sort of like that's not the the aspect of the game that um, really thrills me. I mean, I think that the campaign for an average playthrough is well over 20 hours generally, and it's sort of like the game could be a little shorter. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think it would lose a lot by, by tightening up a couple of the areas. Um, but, you know, these are all pretty, pretty minor things, all things considered. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of talking about tweaks, not like, I wish this one thing were fundamentally different or removed or, you know, changed. Um, so
0: with that, man, like top three Resident Evil games, how would you rate them? Obviously four at the top, and then I would assume from there, one, and then Code Veronica by default, because like they're the only ones you've played. Or have you played five or six?
1: <laughs> no, I, I, played, um, I played Resident Evil 1, 2, and 3 all the way through. Ah. Um, I played Resident Evil 5 a fair amount, um, maybe like halfway through the campaign or something like that. Mm. Um, and I, play, I I played the demo for Resident Evil 7 mm. uh, and I'm really, really, really interested to see how Resident Evil 7 ends up coming out. That's going to come out about a month like after the first of the year mm. um, from when we're recording this and, you know, I don't know if it's going to turn out to be great or not but they, like Resident Evil 4 have said we need to abandon the formula we need to think about what is really the heart of Resident Evil and how can we apply that to something that is not a familiar gameplay experience? Um, and I think that that's really bold and I hope it'll turn out to be like legitimately good and not just interesting, but either way, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing how that game turns out. Um, I guess for me, yeah, it would be Resident Evil 4 and then one and then two, I guess, would probably be my order um, off the top of my head. Uh, but who knows, that could change when when Resident Evil seven is released. Go for it. I mean, I didn't work on the original Bioshock. Um, I worked on Bioshock Two and and on Infinite, and so I joined that uh, that development team as a fan first and foremost. Um, so Bioshock One is definitely on my list. Um, you know, for being a new vision of what the classic immersive sim like. System Shock 2 and, you know, Deus Ex and Thief, um, what those influences kind of mean to bring into a more modern, kind of like console-focused action RPG experience, while still, I think, um, maintaining so much about what makes those games important, and especially what made System Shock 2 so affecting, like you were saying, the, the tone and the atmosphere and the tension of being in this, this you know, kind of oppressive place while still relying on those core mechanics of, of the experience being very player-driven and being very much about environmental storytelling um, and kind of trusting the player to engage with that stuff and not forcing it upon them, while also establishing an incredibly kind of new feeling and inspiring place and set of characters you know rapture and Andrew ryan felt so um fresh and fully formed when um when you played that game um so i think that's all super valuable um one of my other favorite games is 30 flights of loving by brendan chung um blendo games which was a short game released in 2012 on the pc which is almost entirely wordless doesn't have any spoken dialogue. It's about twenty minutes to play through it, and it's a hundred percent environmental storytelling in a first-person perspective. But also using the language of film editing and and cinematic uh, grammar to cut up the the experience into this sort of a chronological order and the player playing through it and being kind of fully engaged with driving what they're seeing on screen at any given point is reconstructing that into a narrative that is sort of implied more than told. Um, and it's so confident and so fully of its own form. Um, and so effective, it's just, it's, it's really powerful. And yeah, you can get that on steam for I think five bucks, you know, it's really short and um, you can play it multiple times and kind of, it's one of those interesting games where the first time you play through it, you get something out of it and you're like, wow. And then the second time you play through it, you have context for all of the stuff that you see early. And it means even more the second time that you go through it or the third, which is which is just really satisfying. Um. I love Full Throttle, um, which was a mid-90s LucasArts point-and-click adventure game by Tim Schafer, um, and for me, that is really also about the world and the characters. Like, It's a world that's almost like our same world with just a little bit of surreality to it, and it's about this sort of very noir-tinged set of characters that are, that are going through Um, a plot of like you know family and corporate intrigue um, that has a sort of yeah classic noir structure but the way that those characters are rendered and how you understand them as people and especially the ending of that game and just how it perfectly encapsulates the impossibility of of where the characters kind of wanted things to to go in a way that's that's Touching and understated um, has been a huge influence on me. Um, so that's a that's a good that's a good few runners up.
0: <laughs> that, that's that's, that's that a good list. Um, so so top three games overall. How would you rank them? Obviously already four at the top. But how would you fill out the other two?
1: Um. Well, I mean, God, I don't know. Um, I mean, other games that I'm I'm a huge fan of are, like, Fallout 3. I loved the original Fallout, and I loved how they um, turned it into a fully explorable world in Fallout 3. Um, I just, like you were saying, I just finished playing The Last Guardian, and that had so much more of an impact on me than really anything that I've played in years, that I was just in awe of that game. And it's been too recently that I finished it, but I could absolutely... Imagine that sticking around is one of my favorite games in in memory, um, just because it's such an incredible technical achievement, and what it expresses through the story that lives within the mechanics and the the experiences that you go through with Trico are just like unbelievable. Um, Uh, I I love Animal Crossing because I like visiting my little village every day. (laughs) So, I don't know. There's this whole, like, I I really have a deep appreciation for The Sims because it was such a departure and spoke so directly to people's sort of, like, real lives in a way that was almost a critique of people's own drives. Um, So, I I, I don't know. Um, Let's say Resident Evil 4 is at the top, and let's say... Fallout Three is after that, and let's—I eh, don't know—let's uh, let's say, yeah, Full Throttles in there, maybe. I don't know. It, uh, even choosing Resident Evil Four as like quote unquote my favorite game was really hard. I've got a lot of good arguments for it, but um, I could argue for other games as well. So <laughs> I, can, I, can, I, I could I could throw a top three out there, but I feel like I would have a hard time quantifying
0: it, you know. Very, very much.
1: The game that, that uh, our studio released most recently is Gone Home, and it's available on Xbox One and PS4 and PC. So you know if you want to check that out, um, hopefully it's available wherever you would like to play it. And then right now um, we're working on our new game, which is called Tacoma, which kind of speaks most directly to the System Shock Two experience. As far as Tacoma takes place on a space station that the crew has been evacuated from. And it's a non-combat story exploration game about you arriving on this space station and trying to figure out what happened to the crew by um, interacting with these 3D recordings of moments that happened to them before you arrived. So you're kind of moving through the space of the station itself, plus through the timeline of these events that happened before you got there and you're able to move through the space while echoes of these moments are happening to the characters. It's, it's another layer of giving you more um, kind of ways to reconstruct a narrative as the player instead of kind of having it it handed to you. Um, and we're excited about what we're doing with it. It's coming to PC and Xbox One in 2017. Um, uh, you know, we're still a little ways out um, so we don't have a release date or anything but if you want to find out stuff about that you can go to Tacoma.game or um, check out Tacoma Game uh, on Twitter um, and if you want to follow me or anything I'm up to I'm at FoldRight on Twitter um, and uh, I guess that's pretty much it <laughs> <laughs> I try to think if there's anything else. I'm like, no, nah, I think it's everything. Yeah, that's true.
2: <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening to my favourite game. It's worth noting that this episode was first recorded in December of 2016. Which may make some of the references in this episode a bit outdated. Nonetheless, most of it still stands. So we're fine. Anyway, next week, Ed fear on Xenogears. Until next week, bye bye.